Canyons, this series, we, when, we, when we began to map out this fall and what we wanted to tackle, this, this idea of dealing with the realities of life. And sometimes we walk into church and everything's happy and cheery and the music's all upbeat. And um, the reality is not all of us are in that place that we're on a mountaintop. And most of us at some point in life are going to walk through a valley and what many have called the dark night of the soul. And navigating the dark night of the soul, navigating what we believe about God in the midst of the dark night of the soul is a challenging thing. And so during this series, we're looking at the Psalms, these words of David, uh, the things that he wrote as he walked through many dark nights of his soul, like anxiety and fear. If you were here last week, Lori did a great job of walking through her story and some of the fear and anxiety that was a part of her life. Um, Today, we're going we're gonna to dig in just a little bit further. I'm going to step on some toes today. Is that okay? I'm going to step on my own toes today. Hopefully, that's okay. Uh, and, I, and I want us just to get into a place that um, sometimes is uncomfortable, but I think is incredibly healthy and moves us in a good direction. Now, some of you have asked about resources, some things that you can go a little bit deeper with the conversations we're having. Uh, there are four books available back in the Connect Room today. Uh, Where is God When It Hurts? The Problem of Pain. Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering, and The Soul of Shame, and some of the lies we, we tell ourselves. Um, if, if you're someone who wants to go a little bit further in these discussions, these are four good resources that are available in that connect room. It's just the left door as you, as you head out. Um, we don't make any money on these. We just buy them and provide them as an opportunity. They're 10 bucks each. Uh, we just buy them from Amazon and pass them on to you um, for that same price. But if it's something you're interested in, there's a few of those back in the back. Now, if you miss everything else today, I try to say this every week in case you're going to sleep. Um, if you miss everything else today, I don't want you to miss this. I, I hope you can take this thought, this idea, and, and let it just sink into your, your heart and your mind. And here it is. Um, darkness. So often when we're in, in the canyons of life, uh, we believe that the darkness uh, that, that's around us is what defines us. And the truth is, darkness doesn't have the power to define us. It can only hide us. The darkness, when we walk through the darkness, the darkness only has the, the power to hide who we are. Light is the only thing that has the power to define us. Does that, does that make sense? Like, light is the only thing that gives us shape and definition. And it's God's light and His love that, in, in, the, in the most true way, defines who you are as a person because he's your creator. And so often it's in the darkness that we begin to take on identity and that identity uh, isn't the reality, but we think it's the reality because we're surrounded by darkness and we can't see out. And so if, if you miss everything else that we talk about David and, and the Psalm 51 that we're going to jump into, don't miss this, that the darkness that you might be walking through right now, though it might feel like that is who you are, maybe the shame or the guilt or whatever it is that's hanging over your head, like that isn't the truth of who you are. God and his light is the one who can truly mark you as his son and his daughter. And that's the most important thing that you can hear and know about your, your heavenly father who loves you. So here's what I want to talk about. Shame and guilt and trust. That sounds exciting, doesn't it? Let's talk about shame. Everybody wants to talk about shame. Uh, to get there, I want to tell you a quick story from my high school days. And it's going to be a funny story at some level, but it'll also be a little sad. Um, 
I grew up in Pelham, Alabama, just south of Birmingham, small town. Uh, you kind of knew most of the people. You, there, there weren't tons of options for schools. So, you know, you, you, were, you went to school where your house was. That's the school that you went to. You went to school with the people all around you. And I'll never forget, I was driving down Highway 31, and my brother was sitting next to me, a 1983 Honda Civic, and it was the ugliest brown you could ever imagine, dark, dark brown. And it had like velour seats um, that because of the sun and the humidity in Alabama through the summers, and it was like 10 or 11 years old, the car, like they had begun to like get stringy, you know, the, the seats were kind of falling apart and the underneath was coming out. I mean, it's just the ugliest car. I don't know why I'm telling you that part. Anyways, we're driving in my car and my brother's sitting next to me and we're, we're coming down. We're going to turn on Valleydale Road. And I remember this intersection. Uh, there, there was a red light and I, I know Jim and Nick's barbecue was right over here. And I knew on this, because I know where the barbecue is, because barbecue is awesome. And on this corner was a bank. And I think it was AmSouth Bank, uh, but I can't, I can't be sure. But we pull up to this red light and I decided that, you know, waiting two minutes for the red light to turn green was just way too long and an inconvenience because Taco Bell was calling. And I decided not to stop at the red light, but just to go ahead and pull right through. So I did. There was a police officer sitting in the parking lot of the bank watching the red light as I pulled through. And as you can imagine, he turns on his lights. You know that feeling when you see the lights behind you, whether or not they're coming after you? You know that feeling of the lights and everything kind of sinks within you and you lose your breath and you're like, are they going to pull me over? Well, I'm the only one on the road, so of course he's going to pull me over. My brother is laughing hysterically in the seat next to me because he's such an encouragement. And so pull over and the police officer walks to the, the side of my car and some of you won't remember this, but I had to roll down my window. There were these like roller things that brought the window down. So I rolled it down and he came up and he said, uh, can I see your license and registration please? And so I pull out my license and I hand it to him. No kidding. The police officer looks at my license and he leans down and he looks at me and he looks at my brother and he looks back at me in the eyes and he stands up and he looks at the license again and he goes, off the record, are you the quarterback of the football team here in Pelham? Why, yes, sir, I am. <laughs> How good do you think you guys are going to be this year? I think we're going to be pretty good this year. We've got a lot of our starters back. should be a good season. I sure hope it's a good season. You guys have a good night. Hands me my license back. As soon as I roll my window back up, I look at my brother, and he's like, I can't believe that just happened. <laughs> and it was a funny story. I, I, I love that I didn't get a ticket. But what happened in that moment as I look back on my life is there was a part of my identity that was supported and defined. And I bought into the lie that it was my achievement and my position in other people's eyes that defined who I was. And it was a sad event. I didn't need that as a high schooler. My parents were awesome. They raised me, and I never doubted their love for me. I was so thankful. My dad, I, I mean, every day, almost to a fault, told me how much he loved me. And he always told me, you could never do anything that would remove my love for you. My mom, same thing. We love you, we love you, we love you, we love you. Somewhere in my childhood, I picked up on the idea that my, uh, my identity, my worth, and my value 
was all found in what I achieved, the grades that I got, the goodness that I was able to provide for the world around me, my status as a quarterback. And I think every single one of us, as we are growing up, we are looking for an identity. We are looking for value and worth. We are looking for people to prop us up. And we're trying to create something that other people will love. The challenge with that is that we listen more to the voices in the world around us than we listen to the voice of God who tells us we are enough and we are loved because he is our father. And I have no doubts that in this room today, there are people like me who have grown up believing that we are what we achieve or we are what we create on the externals rather than we are who he says we are as sons and daughters. So I want to talk about that as we get into shame because I think shame is the thing that begins to cover us and force us to create the external that we think the world wants us to know. So I want to start with the beginning, Genesis chapter 3. There's a story about Adam and Eve, and they're in the, the Garden of Eden. You've heard that story before, right? Some of you? Adam and Eve, Garden of Eden? I don't have to tell the whole story, do I? Okay. So Adam and Eve were created by God. They're in the garden. God loved them. He walked with them in the garden, which kind of blows my mind. I don't even know what that would be like, but God was with them. They were with God. Uh, they had no clothing or anything like that, but it didn't bother them. They just walked around with God all the time. It's one of the reasons I asked you what kind of clothing you would choose. They chose no clothing at first. And so they're walking around with God. Uh, they enjoyed it. God gave them complete freedom in the garden except for one tree. It was like God had put up a no trespassing sign and said, just trust me in this one thing. Trust what I say to be true. And so just don't, just don't eat of this one tree. You can have everything else in the garden that you want. Just don't have this one thing. Well, that's like telling a three-year-old not to touch the top of the stove, right? Of course, they're going to eventually walk up and take a piece of fruit from the tree and try it because that's humans. That's what we do. So they eventually take the fruit. Who knows how long it was in the story, but they take the fruit. They begin to eat of it. And it says this, that at that moment, their eyes were opened and they suddenly felt shame at their what? At their nakedness. Now, I wanted you to say that word first because I say it incorrectly according to my wife. I'm from the South, so when I said nakedness, it's like a Southern version of nakedness. But it means the same thing as what you said. They had no clothes on. They realized that. I just wanted to get that uncomfortable moment out of the way. They realized and they felt shame at their nakedness. Now, what's interesting about this to me is had they, before this point, had they felt any shame? No. At no point, it was when they disobeyed God that they walked into a moment of feeling like they weren't good enough. So they sewed fig leaves together to cover themselves. They began the process that we all go through of creating an external that we think is needed to cover up the true self that is deep within us. Now, there's some work in this whole world of shame and guilt that we're going to walk through, and I'm only scratching the surface just a little bit, but all of us need to step back and, 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 and ask ourselves, who am I? Not what have I created, not what do other people see in me, but like, who am I? 
When the cool evening breezes were blowing, the man and his wife heard the Lord God walking about in the garden, so they hid from him. Now, this is a devastating verse. Adam and Eve, created by God, loved by God, spent time with God, hid from God because they didn't feel like they were good enough for God. And I think many of us in this room could fall into that same category. We come in on Sundays, we put on a certain air, but down deep we don't feel like we're really good enough for what God has for us. They hid. So God called to Adam and he said, where are you? And Adam answered, I heard you walking, so I hid. I was afraid because I was naked. I had no clothes on and I I was just afraid of what you would think. And God asked him this question, who told you that you were naked? Because yesterday you didn't know it, and it wasn't a problem for you, and the day before that it wasn't a problem, and then the day before that, in the last few weeks, you've never mentioned anything, so who told you? Who told you that about yourself? Who told you you had to hide? And I think that question is one that if we really wrestle with that, who told me I wasn't good enough? Who told me that I had to create a shell of a person, that I had to project a certain image to be accepted? Who, who told me that? Uh, many theologians and counselors would draw a picture maybe that looks like this. All of us begin as a self. We're created as people. We, we have a true self deep within us. But something happens in our lives that brings some sort of shame around us. So we, we are surrounded or we're engulfed in, in a bit of shame that begins to, to kind of enclose us and cause us to withdraw. Shame is what surrounds us. Um, I have a, a, a pastor that uh, talks about a story. His first memory as a child was three years old. His mom had died and his grandmother came to live with him. And um, his grandmother, it was in the fall, I think, when she, she began uh, living with them in their house. Dad was traveling a lot, so he was away. It was nearing Christmas time. Grandmother brought a group of gifts home for the kids that were now a part of her world. Uh, he had, I think, two sisters, a younger sister and an older sister. And so the grandmother opened the bag that she had brought home, and she handed a gift to the oldest, and then she handed a gift to the youngest. She handed nothing to Greg. And one of the other sisters looked at her grandmother and said, Grandma, didn't you get a gift for Greg? And Greg, first memory, grandmother leaned down and she said, I don't have a gift for Greg because bad boys don't get gifts for Christmas. Three-year-old. And he said for the first time, he thinks like shame began to rest over him. He began to be defined as a bad boy. And you know how that story goes. Eventually you walk out the truth of what you believe to be true. The, the words that are spoken to us again and again, and that was the word he heard again and again. Greg's a bad boy. He's not a good kid. And he walked that out in his life. He was shamed from a young age, and he began to believe that he wasn't worth anything. Now, thankfully, God redeemed that and told him something else. Uh, What we often do with 
shame is we begin to create an external shell of ourselves, what many would call a false self. We become a self covered in shame, hiding behind a mask. Many say all humans do this, whether or not you realize it, that you are a self, but there's something around you that wants to protect you, that causes you to shrink back from being who you really are until you are able to create something that you think the world wants to see. And that becomes your false self, the thing that you want to define who you are. Uh, Richard Rohr has done a lot of work in this area. And uh, there's a book called, I think, Falling Forward. He talks about the first 40 years of our lives. We spend all this time creating this false self of who we are, building our egos. And the second half of our lives, we spend taking it apart because we don't uh, find the satisfaction that we thought would be there when we've created what we wanted to create. Does that make sense? And we spend all this time building this false self and somewhere in the middle of our lives we realize that's not what I thought it would be and so we start to dismantle it and move on to other things. Shame and guilt are two things I think Adam and Eve had to wrestle with and they are two things I think David is going to have to wrestle with in our story today. But before I get there, I want to define these two things. Shame is that painful feeling and experience in which we come to believe that we are unworthy of love, we're unworthy of belonging to someone or something, and we're unworthy of connection, like healthy connection with other people. Shame tells you that you are not enough and you're not worthy to receive love, affection, that you have to do something to earn it. Are you with me? That's shame. Guilt, on the other hand, guilt is adaptive and it's helpful. It's this discomfort based on something that we've done, a, a mistake that we've made in the Bible, the sin that hurts other people or hurts God, that guilt is that thing that lifts our minds to our behaviors and it has nothing to do with our core self, who we are. Shame speaks to our core self. You're unworthy. You're not good enough. You're not pretty enough. You're not fast enough. You're not smart enough. All of those things, shame. Guilt, on the other hand, is you shouldn't have done that because you hurt her. You shouldn't have done that because you hurt God's picture of beauty in the world. Make sense? I think the evil one's greatest tool is shame. I think Satan whispers in your ear and my ear all the time, telling us we are not good enough. That what you just did wasn't good enough. Who do you think you are? That, that's not good. You're not good. Have you ever heard that voice? Yeah. So you're wondering, are we ever going to get to the story of David? Yes, we're there. David had this episode with a woman named Bathsheba. Some of you have heard this story before. I won't tell all of it, but I'll give you some little glimpses of it. David was a king, and I think he dealt with shame and had created this persona. He began to buy into the lie of everything uh, that the world told him he was. Uh, he was a king, and he was supposed to be off at war, but he decided to stay home. He decided to go a different direction. And as the story goes, David is on the, the rooftop of his palace overlooking his city, I'm sure just checking things out. And he notices this beauty, beautiful woman sunbathing on a house in his kingdom. Uh, any of you men ever notice a beautiful woman? I just want to see if you're honest in church today. 
I'm married. Yes, your wife. So David notices this beautiful woman. There's nothing wrong with this. He sees a beautiful woman, and he decides to find out who she is. So he has some guys who work for him, and he sends them, and he says, go find out who the woman is. So they go, and they find out who the woman is, and they come back, and they tell him, that's Bathsheba, Uriah's wife. Now, what's interesting about this story, a lot of times we don't know the details, but what's interesting about this story is Uriah was one of David's friends. Like, he had spent time with him. It wasn't just a random guy in the city that he didn't know. Like, he knew Uriah. David believed that he was all-powerful and mighty and that he could do anything he wanted because of what the world said. So he told his fellows, he said, guys, I want you to go and get Bathsheba and bring her to me. Now, just quick time out. This story, uh, oftentimes we, we focus just on David. I, I want to recognize, I want us to recognize that what David did to Bathsheba is horrendous. David forced her into something that she did not willingly accept. David used her and abused her for his own selfish motives. And sometimes in church we like to clean up the story, you know, and just tell certain parts of it. But what David did here was unexcusable. He brings her to his palace, he does what he wants with her, and he sends her back on her way. Now, is that not a horrible story? David, a man after God's own heart, sends her back on her way. She is now pregnant, because that happens sometimes. So David decides the honorable thing to do here is to admit what he has done, to call the city together, to confess to God and to confess to everyone else that he's made a horrible decision. So that's what David does. Please, someone stop me. <laughs> that's not what he does. So David decides the best thing to do in this situation when you're caught, the best thing to do would be to call for Uriah, who is off at war, bring him back, have it like set up a moment, like an intimate moment with him and his wife so he can sleep with his wife and then he's going to think that the baby's his and everything will be taken care of. It's a brilliant story, isn't it? It's a great idea. So this is what he does. He calls for Uriah to come home. Uriah, being an honorable man, decides, I've got, you know, I'm supposed to be out there at war. My buddies are out there at war. They're giving their life and I'm back here. I'm not going to sleep with my wife. I'm just going to go back to war. So he won't do it, which is bad news for David. Because David thought this was the best cover-up. So he decides the best thing to do now is just to be honest. To, to admit what he's done before God and others. To bear his soul. No, he doesn't do that. David decides the best thing to do is to kill his friend to cover this up. Now... I know we probably don't go around having people murdered. I hope you don't go around having people murdered. But we do similar things to protect our image. We're willing to lie if it protects who we are. We go on record to say, oh, what that that's not true. Knowing full well what we've done. So David like, has his buddy killed in the line of fire. He's able to bring Bathsheba into his home now, and now everything's good for David, right? 
It's all perfect. Set it up, covered it up, no big deal. Everything's taken care of until Samuel shows up. Samuel shows up and he tells David a story that just angers David. He's like, how could someone take something that is not his? Isn't that funny? That guy should be killed, whoever it is. If he's around here, he should be killed. And Samuel looked at him and said, that's you. That's you. And David came face to face with his sin, with murder, with abuse. He had to look deep within him and be honest about who he had become. Not in a shameful way, but in a way of guilt to move him towards God. So David pens this psalm, which I think can be incredibly helpful for some of us this morning. Have mercy on me, O God, because of your unfailing love. Because of your great compassion, blot out the stain of my sin. Wash me clean from my guilt. Purify me from what I've done. Like David, finally, he finally turns to God. Not at the beginning, but at the end. He finally turns to God and asks God to begin to to clean him. He says, for I recognize my rebellion. It haunts me day and night. Purify me from my sins and I will be clean. Wash me and I'll be whiter than snow. Give me, give me back my joy. You've broken me. Now let me rejoice. Don't keep looking at my sin. Remove the stain of my guilt. And then he says this, create in me a clean heart. Like, do some work deep within me. Like, create something within me that I've covered up. Renew a right spirit within me. Don't banish me from your presence. Don't kick me out. And don't take your Holy Spirit from me. This psalm, Psalm 51, is a psalm of confession. It's a psalm that that helps us put into words some sorrow, some honesty, some openness before God. What David doesn't do is he doesn't wrap his identity into his sin, but rather he, he looks for God to restore his identity and forgive his sin. Two very different things. I think so often we get, we get all of that mixed up. We get our behavior mixed up with our identity when God wants our identity to stand alone. All of us have behavior issues. We all have sin. We all make terrible decisions in life. Can I get an amen from someone? Is it just me? Makes terrible, like we all make terrible decisions. God knows that. What God doesn't want is for those terrible decisions to define us and create some false self. The shame that, that makes us create some false self about who we are. So the path, what do we do with this? Like when, when we begin to open up or when someone confronts us or when we stare in the mirror and realize that we have intertwined our identity with our behavior, we've, we've fallen into a dark place and we don't know how to get out. Like what do we do with that? Where do we find help? And I think for David, the starting point, I think for us, the starting point should be God, that we should start with prayer. If you're like me, 
prayer tends to be the last resort? Anyone? Like, I wonder what would have happened if David would have started with prayer. Like, if he would have, realizing what was taking place, if he would have gone to God and said, God, I have screwed up royally. No pun intended, because he was the king. Anyway, uh, I wonder what would have happened if David would have started with God instead of ended with God. I think our starting point to, to open up, to reveal, like, what is that shame that, that we've bought into, that we've believed, and like, starting with prayer. Uh, I said this a couple weeks ago, and I want to I just reiterate this, that prayer isn't a place to, to, like, be good. Sometimes we think we have to edit our prayers. God can handle your honesty, your raw honesty. And some of us today need to turn back to God, and we need to be completely honest with him. God, I am ticked off that my mom used to say those things about me, that my grandmother told me I wasn't good. I, I am so mad that you gave me a mom like that. That's okay to, to be honest with God. He can, he can handle that. Or, or God, I am so ticked off at my dad because all I've wanted from my dad is a little bit of approval, but he can't give me anything. I just wanted to know I was good enough for him. I grew up thinking I could never be good enough. I never got the approval I wanted, I needed. Or my, my ex-husband, God, I, I can't believe you let me marry him and he took everything that he took from me. I can't believe he did the things I was ashamed for anyone else to see. God, I don't understand why I had to walk through that dark valley. Like, God can handle your honesty. He can handle your language. He can handle your frustrations. He can ha handle your doubts. He can handle it all. And until we are honest in prayer, completely honest in prayer, I think shame still has a little grip on us. We're still protecting ourselves. Holding back. So we start with prayer. The second thing, not as easy, to trust what God says to be true. To trust that your behavior doesn't have to define you, but rather God's declaration can define you. That you are his son and his daughter, an heir to his kingdom. And that, my friends, is good news. Like you can smile at that. That's good news. I know it's kind of a downer today, but that's good news that what God says about you is the most true thing about who you are the one who created you, and the one who will be there in the end. He is the one who holds the truth about who you are. And you need to lean into that truth and believe it to be true. And sometimes that means hearing it again and again and again. I think so often we believe the lies that were told to us, and we attune our ears to the world that just echoes the lie. Like we attune ourselves to the people around us who are just highlighting what isn't true. Matt, if you're going to be worthy of love, you better be good. Matt, if you're going to be worthy of love, you better build a great church. Matt, if you're going to be worthy of love, 
you need to succeed where others have failed. And we attune our ears to those lies that are just echoed in our culture. Robin, if you're ever going to be loved, you've got to be prettier than that. You better work a little bit harder at, at that part of your life if you really want people to love you. We attune our ears to the lies that tend to enslave us, surround us with shame, instead of attuning ourselves to God and what he says to be true. Like you are his masterpiece. You, you're his masterpiece. Like you're his creation. The highlight of everything else he made. You, a masterpiece. So we start with prayer, we trust God, and the last piece is we, um, we lean into community. As hard as it may be, we find people that we can trust, who love us unconditionally, and we begin to peel back the layers and be honest about what lies deep within us. Because when we're around people that love us, they tend to speak God's words into our lives. They, 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 they tend to speak good into us, the, the good from God. Like we need each other in this journey. In the dark night of the soul, sometimes it's the, the people around us that begin to pull us out. Uh, I, I know I talk about it quite a bit, but AA, I think, is a great picture of this. In AA, you find a community of people who are broken, but who are honest about that brokenness, and you walk together out of something that holds you back. You get out of the shame mindset. Here's the truth. I think we all need AA. We just need it for different things. Because we all surround ourselves and create things to protect us, to hide us. It's only in opening ourselves that we, we find healing. We get away from that shame that enslaves us. Sometimes that can be done with a counselor. It's a good starting point. A counselor, a spiritual pastor, someone maybe to help you. And that's part of the reason we're here as pastors. Sometimes we point you to a counselor who maybe can help you a little bit further with some of those issues from your past. Start with prayer. Trust what God says about you. And then lean into community. Um.